Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. When you look into their eyes, you know somebody is home. They're an animal that possesses great spiritual power not to be meddled with. We need SO to respond for a dead person at SeaWorld. A whale has eaten one of the trainers. Tilikumbo is the one that went after her. Don is the senior trainer here at Shamu Stadium. She captured what it means to be a SeaWorld trainer, that it made me realize what happened to her really could have happened to anyone. I've been expecting somebody to be killed by a telecom. We weren't told much about it, other than it was trainer error. It didn't just happen. It's not a singular event. You have to go back to understand this. The speedboat herded them in, and they could just pick out the young ones. This is the worst thing that I've ever done. When Tillicum arrived at SeaWorld, he was twice as large as the next animal. We stored these whales in what we call a module, which was 20 feet across and 30 feet deep, and the lights were all turned out. Probably led to what I think is a psychosis. in captivity are all psychologically traumatized. It's not just Tillicum. If you were in a bathtub for 25 years, don't you think you'd get a little psychotic? Don would tell you that it was her mistake. They blamed her. It's just a bold-faced lie. I was just instructed to get rid of the tape. The industry has a vested interest in spinning these. That sells a lot of Shamu dolls. It sells a lot of tickets at the gate. There's no record of an orca doing any harm in the wild. Today our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Ventry. You know Dr. Ventry from the phenomenal documentary Blackfish, which is an expose on SeaWorld and orcas in captivity. Dr. Ventry is also a progressive activist. He has been advocating for single-payer health care as a medical doctor and working on ec ecological environmental causes as well. Welcome, Dr. Ventry. Thanks, Tina. I'm happy to be on the show. Uh, well, it's great to have you. We're excited to be able to talk with you not only about the things that you have expertise in, such as Blackfish, but also your opinions on political matters, because I'm guessing you don't get to talk about that very often. I don't. I don't. But I, I did get a like from Susan Sarandon yesterday when I told her that I thought <laughs> an interview with uh, Chris Hayes was one of the most precise and great interviews of all time. And so I you've, you've been on the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders quite a bit, a uh, bunch of states. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always curious what you feel like, what do you get from that? Oh, wow. I so much hope and so much connection with an America that I haven't seen. I mean, I've driven across country a while back and I've, you know, I worked in Iowa, but to actually have the opportunity to talk to people and so moved by their passion and there's a lot of independent thinkers in the middle of this country. 
and to see them give their time and their passion and be so vulnerable that way to want to be engaged again after not having anyone really that they trusted or spoke to them and see thousands upon thousands of people turn out and also thousands of volunteers from other places and to visit those little offices and to introduce him in the beginning when he didn't have any security whatsoever and you know now there's all these guys secret service traveling with him and everything but um, I I really want to be on the right side of history and this is a shot that we're not going to have again in my lifetime to have a candidate that is so morally consistent, makes decisions whose judgment proves to be true but does it at a time when it's not popular, when it's not comfortable, a candidate who's not taken any money from fracking or Monsanto or you know super PACs or Wall Street or all of the farm, big farm, you know, which all the other candidates have. And uh, and those are issues that are really important to me. So to have a guy that's that consistent, that is that clean, you, it's just not going to happen again. You, you just said on the right side of history, which is interesting to me. Um, I think in certain quarters there's growing concern that the folks that are into Bernie Sanders um, have come to despise Hillary Clinton or reject Hillary Clinton and that should she be the nominee, which is as yet undetermined, they will walk away. That's a legitimate concern because they're very passionate and very principled and... But isn't that crazy? If, well, I, you if know, you believe in what he believes in, yeah, but she doesn't. She's accepted money from all those people. She won't, doesn't even want to fight for a fifteen-dollar minimum wage. So these are people that have not been, uh, that have not come out before. So why would we think they're going to come out now for her? You know, that, that's you really a, think that. I think there's a good possibility. I talk to people who either want to write. I talk to Republicans who have written him in already. You know, and they just feel like she's not authentic. That she's a liar. That they don't trust her so what difference does it make you know if you're a small farmer and you're worried about fracking on your property in Idaho they just passed a bill where they can frack on private land yeah. and you know that she's taken money from fracking why would you think that that's she's going to have your back well because they make the argument that uh, there are all kinds of politicians Barack Obama is the one that Hillary Clinton cites all the time who have done things to effectively rein in industries uh, or reform industries that they've taken money from I'd like to, I'd you, like you don't to buy see it. that. Uh, no, I don't buy it at all because she's been selling fracking all over the world. There's her talking about Mon, you know, Monsanto and how clean, not talking about Roundup or what they put in it or what it's done to our economy. And they know that jobs are going out. You know, Bernie doesn't um, vote it against NAFTA. You know, TPP or what? You know, all these things coming up that they know affect their jobs, and she's not on the right side of that. She hasn't voted right. So, what would make you think that once she gets in, she's going to suddenly go against the people that have given her millions and millions of dollars? I don't. I think that's being incredibly naive and egotistical to think suddenly she's going to see the right. You know, that is one of the that interview. Not only is precise and, and on point, but it. It stands the test of time. Like, right? Hillary couldn't even be bothered to return to Michigan to to campaign when she lost her own primary there. Who does this? It's really, you know, Pied Piper. Here's another thing. They elevated Trump because they didn't think he could win. We could we can go down the list of mistakes. Susan Sarandon is not the problem here, and I'm so tired of her getting dragged. She's a fantastic amazing progressive activist she's i mean she got arrested three or four weeks ago where all of these folks that are you know dragging her all over twitter when were they ever arrested for protesting anything i mean they're all like wanting to eat brunch or something i just it's really mind-numbing to me that that's been going on 
blamed for electing Trump, and I was happy to get that little like on Twitter. So, yeah, pretty pretty left. Um, uh, I'm like you like you mentioned, I'm a single payer advocate. It's interesting that a lot of Americans are unfamiliar with single payer actually entails but i honestly blame corporate propaganda for this because then through the years i mean it's not just recently you can go back 30 years into the early 1970s they've sort of put forth this idea that quote unquote socialized using my scare quote socialized medicine was um, something to be afraid of and they tried to tie it to things like the bad definitions of socialism aka ussr sort of kgb stuff so it's this long fought battle that we've had about um the way Americans believe these things to be in the way they actually are in the world. So I think we've made a lot of headway in the last five or six years in actually re-educating the population on that. And I think it helps that Bernie Sanders ran um, in that primary because he spoke directly about it and wasn't afraid to talk about it. And the fact is, is we're the only industrialized nation out there that doesn't have a single payer system. It's far more economically efficient. And so if the moral arguments, which are clear to me, don't compel you, the, the economic one um, definitely should. Do you feel like you can talk more directly to single-payer health care as an MD since, you know, that's sort of your uh, neck of the woods? Absolutely. And uh, that was one of my biggest letdowns with Barack Obama, that he didn't even put uh, single-payer on the table when he began the negotiations for Obamacare, which is being dismantled right now. Um is how do we get the federal government to take care of its business? I happen to be a proponent of a single-payer universal health care plan. That's the only reason why the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, is spending 14%, 14% of its gross national product on health care cannot provide basic health insurance to everybody. And that's what Jim's talking about when he says, everybody in, nobody out. A single-payer health care plan, universal health care plan. That's what I'd like to see. But as all of you know, we may not get there immediately. Because first, we've got to take back the White House, and we've got to take back the Senate, and we've got to take back the House. So, yeah, um, I have, you know, nurses and uh, front desk girls that work not for me, but with me at my office. I'm a physiatrist, physical medicine, and rehab specialist. I see patients in an outpatient setting, and they literally spend all of their day when they're not helping me directly on the phone getting pre-approvals, pre-authorizations for one of the maybe 40 or 50 third-party payers that are paying the bills for my patients. And a lot of times when, when I decide to do the procedure, um, you know, we can't do it on the spot when it would be best to do that from an efficiency standpoint. We've got to put in a referral and wait a couple of weeks before, you know, Kaiser or Aetna says, okay, you can do this. So that is super inefficient. You've got to bring patients back. Another thing that happens all over the place is say you have two twins, two twin girls, for example, you know, Carol and Jody, and one has, say, a state insurance or Medicaid or something like that, and the other one has a commercial insurance. Well, they prioritize the person with the the commercial insurance. And and so, you know, the, the girl that I just mentioned, one might have, they might have the exact same broken leg, or they might have, uh, you know, the one with the state insurance might have even a more pathological condition, but they will get scheduled after the person with the commercial insurance. Another thing I'd like to point out is they spend a lot of time on the phone 
you know, say you order a particular medicine that isn't on the formulary of the third-party payer that the patient has, but they're bickering with pharmacists for alternative drugs that formulate the... I'm not a big drug prescriber, by the way. I'm a physiatrist. We, we tend to stick, stay away from medications as much as possible, but there are times when you need to prescribe medication, and then you find out that that the pharmacy won't pay for that particular medication, like a Celebrex over a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, you know, regular, like an ibuprofen or something like that. So they kick you off to like a, a, genetic, a generic med or something not as appropriate for that particular patient. And then it impacts on the front side because people aren't getting any preventative care or counseling. And then you've got most insurance companies, before I went to medical school, believe it or not, I was, I was practicing as a chiropractor. And so one of the reasons that urged me to go back to school was there was hardly in Portland, Oregon at the time where I was practicing. There were, there were very few third-party payers that would even pay for chiropractic care. And I got kind of fed up with having to submit treatment plans for primary care and leave that didn't really know what I was doing anyway. So there was a lot of red tape. And, and so I do see patients both as a medical doctor and I do manipulate about 15% of the patients that I see now, which is nice because I can do it under my MD uh, license, which has a broader scope of practice. So someone that has, these, uh, say, manipulation or mobilization that can't get to a chiropractor might come see me because of that reason. So I think there's some stats out there. I think that the administrative cost of Medicare is like 5% uh, nationwide. And I think for commercial insurance, it's like 18%. And that's because it might be higher, yeah, but it's super, it's, it's three or four times what uh, a Medicare for all plan would be. And um, as that, what was it, that um, Koch study that came out that just said Americans would save more overall recently, if you just implemented this plan, yeah, the government has <clears throat> a large percentage of my patients for physical therapy, and at least in my office, it's not unheard of for each physical therapy session to have a $50 copay. What a joke. I mean, uh, recently, my company that I work for, we used to have pretty good insurance two years ago. They flipped all the physicians off of insurance, I got kicked off to a health savings account. It's just really ironic. Every time I'm trying to give you use insurance, there's always a reason why they don't pay. Well, uh, you're out of you're out of network because I live in Ellensburg, Washington, which is about 20 miles from where the hospital that I work for is. And so, you know, I like to see my local doctor in my local town, and uh, you know they don't cover it. So there's always little loopholes and reasons for companies not to pay. And yeah, the the uh, the it, 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 it's BS, and there's a lot of propaganda out there, just like there was from SeaWorld. The the CEOs of insurance companies and 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 big pharma have controlled the message, and the politicians, you know, for the last 50 years, just like SeaWorld controlled the captivity message message until Blackfish came along. So we're seeing some change now, a lot of it's due to uh, Bernie Sanders, and also. You know, we've had a lot of progressive candidates win recently, including yesterday in New York, so that's cool. I do want to go back and talk about Blackfish for a second. Um, So there's an age-old debate in philosophy about whether animals are uh, sentient. And I'm not a human exceptionalist. I believe that they are. And I think that 
that human beings make this mistake of feeling that they're superior simply because they don't understand the environments that these animals are in, or they don't communicate in the same way. What you, know, you can go down the list of things. So I uh, definitely side with the idea that that uh, animals are sentient beings and should be um, treated as such. It's the, it's the spread of excellence in a Darwinian sort of a environment, meaning that creatures adapt to for success in the environments that are in. So why put your human idea of what success is onto them? It's different. So um, with that in mind, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but it seems to me that orcas are exceedingly intelligent beings that are most definitely sentient. Uh, so what's so devastating to me about blackfish was seeing their emotional well-being um, the way that they were treated, you could tell that they were really distraught and distressed. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, I just want to kind of say, no, duh. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. There's, there's absolutely no doubt that they're sentient. There's absolutely no doubt that they have cultures. They're tool users. They communicate history to their young. One of only, was it, four known species now, short pilot whales, killer whales, humans, and belugas just recently discovered that experience uh, a postmenopausal life. So only four species now known that have menopause, which means that there's value in these postmenopausal females. And all, of course, <clears throat> all the species but ours are ma matriarchal. So that's why you have these animals like Granny that live to 104, leaving the southern residence, because she knows where the, the fish are, the rapidly blue-winged Chinook salmon. And so her wisdom that she passed on to her sisters and daughters that continue to lead uh, the look for fish today. So there's no doubt that this sentient. Some of the like, hangover we have from organized religion is this, this idea of dominion and that we're, some, that we're somehow better than all the other members of the animal kingdom. And a better way to look at it is that we're on par. Now, the killer whale brain is four or five times larger than the human brain, and they've got a, a limbic system, which is the seat of emotion, and a paralimbic system that is much more highly elaborated than, than humans. So they've got a part of the brain that we don't even have. And they have, they have, they've come to the same point in time with an evolutionary history of 8 million years. Now, the brain is a highly oxygen-dependent organ. And so there has to be a survival advantage for devoting so much resources to, to oxygenating this huge brain. So there's no doubt that they're sentient. And they're doing some pretty unique stuff that we have no idea how to interpret because we don't have the same skills, for example, echolocation and, and the limbic system that I already mentioned, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, of course it's different. Right. So it seems to me that, you know, when you see all of the uh, problems that have occurred at SeaWorld with the trainers being attacked and indeed what, two or three of them have been killed now, um, you would... Uh, four, four people have been killed okay. by killer whales, yeah. So the reactions that they're having... Um, are understandable if you really look at them from an emotional perspective. I mean, they have a strong nuclear family. Uh, they live, right. In, right, live in pods, whatever. You're separating the mothers from their children. You're doing things that if you could imagine if you were the orca and put yourself in that position and this was happening to you and your family, you'd be damn angry too. So well, just, just, look at the recent, I'm sorry, just look at the recent example of J35. She pushed her dead baby around for 17 days, capturing right. global attention through the to the plight of this particular group of whales. By the way, this group is in trouble. The southern res resident killer whales are the only endangered population. 
uh, in the world. I mean, there's a couple other threatened populations, but they're only the only population listed as endangered. Mm-hmm. And there's two reasons for that. One is that SeaWorld took out about 40% of their members. They went from 130, 130 to 70 in the mid-60s to mid-70s before they were kicked out of Washington State by court order. And then corresponding with the mid-70s was the final construction of the Lower Snake River Dam, which has now uh, led to a situation where now where there's less than 1% of wild Chinook salmon, you know, Wild Snake River Chinook salmon that once numbered in the millions each year, today teeter on the brink of extinction. There's no turning back. If we lose these fish, you're looking at an evolutionary miracle that's gone. We have no way to restore Snake River Basin Chinook if they go away. It's a migration achievement that has fascinated humankind for centuries. Historically, this transformation and the trip to the ocean took one to three weeks. Today, it can take months. The five-inch-long juveniles must negotiate a chain of slackwater reservoirs more than 300 miles long. Once turbulent waters are today slowed to a crawl behind eight dams on the Snake and Columbia Rivers. The few who are fit enough to survive the rigors of ocean life will spend one to three years in the salt water, repeating a cycle of nature thousands of years old. Today, most studies on Snake River salmon agree. Too many man-made obstacles impede salmon migration. And while adult salmon struggle to negotiate fish ladders, the dams are hardest on migrating smolts, adding more stress to their already stressed bodies putting them in serious peril for their continued existence. Fisheries scientists almost unanimously agree the best solution to the problem would remove four dams on the Lower Snake River. Removing these dams would return the snake to a natural, free-flowing river, improve migration timing for smolts headed downstream, and remove four major obstacles for adults returning to spawn in the Snake River, and that was 50% of their diet. So they are decimated. And so just this month, um, we saw J35 uh, pushing around her dead baby for 17 days, almost like a message to humans, but to, so we take some action. But here in Washington State, we've got three weak leaders and Governor Jay Inslee and Senators Cantwell and Murray, because if they simply compelled the commander of the Army Corps of Engineers to dewire this for damaging dams that are money losers, we'd see these uh, salmonids bounce back quickly. That's what salmon are known for. You just got to give them half a chance. And opening up uh, several hundred miles of Snake River, which is climate resistant uh, uh, water, would, would you'd see millions of fish return within 18 months. But they're talking about all these other mitigation measures that are kind of fringe, maybe like cleanups and, you know, um, beach cleanups and, and uh, hanging more hardware on the dams and adding fish ladders. And all this has already been tried uh, at a cost of $1 billion to U.S. taxpayers and, and state taxpayers. And Bonneville Power, something that runs these dams, is selling all of it to California at a loss. In fact, there is complete surplus power. The four lower snake dams produce 3% of the northwest power grid at a time of year when it's not needed, i.e. spring runoff. 
People don't need power in the spring. They need power in the winter for heating and the summer for cooling. And 40 times last year, 40 times they had to shut down uh, windmills, wind turbines, because these dams cannot be turned off. They are run of the river dams because how else are you going to get barges uphill? So the argument is that they should be breaching the dams, right? Uh, for ecological, obviously all these ecological reasons that you're talking about. Right. So why are they refusing to do that? It sounds like they've tried all of these Band-Aid measures that seem to not solve the problem. They're still quite costly when we could be doing this other thing. What's what's the reason, do you think? One problem that I just tweeted out, you know, for example, on it's a hot it's a hot button political issue because people don't understand the reality behind the curtain, and that's what I'm trying to help people understand now. This is a win for wussy Democrats who won't take the bull by the horns, and this is a win for for the GOP who pride themselves in economic prowess because you, you, you do this and both sides win. So it's a political hot button issue. Jay Inslee might have presidential aspirations. She doesn't want to get mired in controversial issue. Um, Senator Cantwell just sponsored a bill that I think got passed, and now they're going to shoot like a thousand sea lions a year because they're blaming the, the poor runs on the sea lions, who, by the way, they're going to be shooting the smart sea lions who are waiting at these fish ladders for the fish to pop out, right? So they're just right. going to start shooting them, which, ne- you, know, you know, calling predators never works. Instead of addressing the issue of four dead beacons that shouldn't have been built in the first place mm-hmm. that are now destroying the entire uh, Columbia Snake watershed, which has eight main stem dams on it. Um, there's a mortality from the, from the perspective of a salmon smolt, is what they're called. You know, the smolt is born above uh, the lower granite dam near Pullman, Washington. They've got to cross eight huge dams to get to the ocean. And if each dam has a 10% mortality associated with it, right. that's impossible lives. And then if they want to get home, they've got to go through eight more. So that's 15 dams that these fish have to go through. And it's simply the biology doesn't work. So what does our government do? They have billion-dollar annual expenditures for fish, which, yeah. are, <laughs> which are literally producing GMO fish, right. just genetically modified organisms. You know, and so these GMOs are diluting the wild salmon genetics, and they are rude. They are a, a story to, uh, you know, to, to please fishermen that want to sit at the Wind River off the Columbia and catch a, a farm-raised fish, but it is it is not the same thing as a healthy ecosystem. So when you hear all these, oh, it's a record year for Chinook, that's all. I don't know if I can cut, but be that. You can cut. Uh, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> it's bullshit. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ruse, it's a facade, and in the case, I'm not ad, an advocate, I'm not advocating all dams, I'm just talking about the ones that don't work, right. and are running at a loss, and are costing money. And the lower four Snake River dams, people don't know this, were a trade-off by LBJ so he could get the silver rights and then it passed, he needed both three. Right. He bargained with the GOP. And so he got, you know, to get the civil rights in the past, which was very important, he, he, he sold the Snake River. And, uh, and the construct, the completion of those dams corresponds pretty precisely with when the collection era at SeaWorld ended. So when the dams were done, there were 70 whales left. And so 
it takes forty, and these whales eat a lot of salmon. So the the starvation didn't happen immediately because the demand from the whales was almost cut in half back in the mid '70s. So now it's just manifesting now. Mm-hmm. The whales have an eighteen month gestation period, and females only get birth once every five years. And so, if a species, they might have the longest gestation on the planet. Um, they need them longer than hump, humpbacks have a um, 11 to 12 months gestation. Killer whales have 18 months, and maybe it's because of that big brain. The children stay with the mother for life, or am I wrong on that? Absolutely true. Um, in the rest, so there's, there's different ecotypes, just like there's Americans and Chinese and Brits. Thirty or forty different ecotypes that all have different dialects, that all have different cultures, that all eat different huh. things. And so, the three main ecotypes that live in the Pacific in the Northeast Pacific, where I live in Washington, are resident orcas, transient orcas, and offshore orcas. There's four ecotypes in the Southern Ocean. There's a New Zealand ecotype. There's an LA pod that specializes on eating white shark liver, great white shark liver. Um, the the orcas in New Zealand, where Dr. Ingrid Disser lives, specialize in eating um, rays, sharks and rays. Um, Icelandic whales, like Tilkum, specialize in eating things like seals and herring. Um, but the, the resident animals that live here, there's southern residents that live in Washington and B.C. There's northern residents that live in you know, north of you know Vancouver Island, and then there's Alaskan residents. All of these are fish eating residents. They all specialize on eating salmon, and that group stays together for life. Um, okay. In fact, in fact, sons, on average, um, never get further than two body lengths from their moms. Wow. Now, as someone with a mom myself, I could never imagine that. <laughs> you know, being that right. close to my mom for, for my whole life. And so, scientifically <laughs> speaking, they are the most social animals on the planet. And so, really... Sucks when we separate them for things like captivity, and this gets back to the greedy response we saw with J35, yeah. uh, just few weeks ago, holding on to that calf for 17 days, which was unprecedented. Yeah, that's tragic. Uh, makes your heart go out. So it seems to me that there really is no ethical or safe way to have killer whales in captivity at all. So in my opinion, am I wrong on this? It should just end immediately. How is SeaWorld still in business? And no, that's absolutely true. There is no ethical way to keep killer whales in captivity, which is what blackfish is about. Yeah. <clears throat> Unfortunately, industry, as you know, has a bigger influence on political systems than environmental issues because they've got more money. Right. That's why, you know, when Governor Inslee has a cope on the climate denying Washington Policy Institute represented on the salmon task force, it really burns me up. Yeah. People need to know people need to know that the Koch brothers are impacting the salmon task force in Washington State right now that is trying to make a educated decision on breaching these lower four Snake River dams, which is a win even for them. They just don't know it, um, and so it really burn, it really just burns burns me up. And I hope one thing that your our program today will will help expose that because the Washington Policy Institute is a climate change denying, co-funded, pro pro industry, pro dam group that is just spreading bullshit. Um, just like the just like the Tri City Herald down in um, in Tri Cities at the headwaters of you know the, the, right in front of Ice Harbor Dam and mm-hmm. Snake River is running these headlines that if you get rid of these dams, 
it's going to cost 100,000 jobs. There's not even 100,000 people in the area. <laughs> there's been, there's, you know, it's just incredible the BS that's yeah. being skewed out here. Yeah. You know, probably, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the whole entire argument about the Keystone XL pipeline. They kept saying that this was a job creator and there was, what, 18 jobs? Not to exaggerate. I think it was that minuscule. It was right. It was <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a problem that we've got with, you know, what our media has devolved into. Right. Where it's really there's really no fact checking going on much anymore. I mean, I can't even stand to watch, you know, CNN and MSNBC or what they're what they're promoting. Um, you know, that it's tough to watch. And it's, tough um, to watch. it's not. It's no longer the fourth estate that they claim to be. I mean, the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. There's a prime example. How much, you know, and uh, Sinclair. A broadcasting is, you know, so they all have a bent. It's just whose bent do they have? And most of it's a corporate platonomy bent, even if it's on the left or the right. I think it's just the platonomy that they're looking to protect. That's right. So we've got these plutocrats and oligarchs and, and corporations running the planet. Capitalism itself, I'm critical of. It, it, yeah. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, right? And so uh, there's been a lot of literature, a lot of it written you know, back in the 70s about yeah. the, the idea of human uh, population overshoots. And um, a lot of these um, journal articles talk about the carrying capacity of the biosphere being, you know, 1.5 to 2 million humans. So if that's true, which I believe it is true, mm-hmm. you, can't, you know, we've been in overshoots since World War One, yeah. and, and now, you know, with the amount of... Uh, you know, carbon we're pumping into the air and the ocean. Um, the loss of the albedo and the polar ice cap, we're probably going to have our first blue ocean event within yeah. the next three years. Yeah. And um, and just the general toxification of our waterways, um, these dams are literally like embolic strokes in the brain. They block everything and kill everything, not just because fish literally get chewed up in the turbines, but because they create a bunch of series of slackwater hot lakes that yeah. kill fish. And then you get invasive species behind these dams, like smallmouth bass that end up eating the smolts, and the smolts have to spend more energy to get through the dam if they're lucky enough to make it. And it's just crushing um, crushing the, the biosphere. And that's really scary to me because if you look at the new Chinese paper on climate that came out in the last six months, that we might be heading for a hothouse event. I mean, we might, we, we might already be locked into that. And the idea that we pulled out of the Paris Accord and, and, and our leaders who all run on the promise of growth is terrifying. And is so terrifying. I, I think people need to figure out, you know, where this food and water comes from. I mean, we can argue about all these other things, but it's for not if we do not do something about the climate change problem. It is the biggest, most scary thing we're facing. And I was also reading this week that they have the red algae problem that has picked up its pace. Um, so it's, this is a form of ice algae that melts the ice cap even faster <clears throat> as it grows. And it's sort of an exponential problem because the more the red algae grows, the faster the ice cap melts, the faster the ice cap melts, the more red right. algae there is. It's, so it's... A recent study published by scientists in Europe found that algae with an Arctic snow is making Arctic glaciers melt faster. 
Watermelon snow is triggered by a type of green algae known as Clematomanus nivalis, which lies dormant during the winter under piles of snow. When temperatures rise above freezing in the spring, the surface melts and the meltwater brings nutrients to the dormant algae cells, stimulating germination. The cells then release green swimming cells with two flagella to propel them to the surface of the snow and daylight. In order to protect themselves from the increased UV light, the algae produce a red carotenoid pigment that changes their colors to pink and red. Ice and snow have a high reflectivity, or albedo, but the red algae darkens the snow and causes it to absorb more sunlight, reducing the albedo of snow by as much as 13%. The melted snow leads to the algae growth, which darkens the snow and causes more to melt, which in turn triggers an algal bloom. We have, um, it's a big problem, and it just blows my mind that we're still in 2018 in a space where there are folks in our government that think climate change isn't real. It's just, I mean, if we stopped emitting carbon tomorrow, we would already be past the danger zone. The question is, right. is how far past the danger zone are we willing to go? You know, and yeah, well, go ahead. There's a guy that I want to turn your listeners on to and maybe you on to. His name is Paul Beckwith. He's on Twitter a lot, and he makes a lot of videos. Either. Hello, I'm Paul Beckwith with the University of Ottawa, the Laboratory for Paleoclimatology. Uh, today, in the next uh, 15 minutes, I'm going to basically teach you how to become a climate scientist using some great software. Um, if you just Google Earth Null School, that's N-U-L-L -L School, um, then you can bring up uh, what you see on the screen here and I'll guide you through it and uh, let you determine yourself what's happening with our planet. Follow him on Twitter. He's okay. constantly putting out um, great videos that are easy for lay people like myself in regard to that science that is really helpful in understanding what's going on. So briefly... Fair, what Jeff, to be fair, you're not entirely a lay person. You do have a PEMD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do have a science background for sure, but um, but um, so he um, what's happened because the Arctic is heating much quicker than the rest of the planet. Right. The temperature differential between equatorial areas and polar areas is becoming less. Jet stream used to be basically a circle that divided cold, dry air in the Arctic from warm. Uh, moist air in the subtropics and tropical areas. Because of the, uh, the warming of the Arctic and the loss of uh, polar ice, we're seeing radius in the jet stream, and that's what's leading to these polar, they call them vortices, where you get this tongue of jet stream that goes down over Florida, for example. I remember during, during the Sochi Olympics a few years ago, I, I'm in Washington State, and it was warmer. It, it was warmer here than it was in Florida, during the Olympics, and they were getting like 27 degrees, you had this tongue dipping down and covering up Florida, where everyone else was hotter, including in Sochi, where the Olympics were. And so that causes two phenomena. It causes unpredictable weather, and it also eliminates uh, upper, atmos upper atmospheric steering currents, which is why Hurricane Harvey sat over Houston for like two weeks and dumped five feet of rain, because there were no steering currents in the atmosphere push that storm away. And that's what they're worried about with Florence right now in um, the Carolinas, just that's hovering right. over coastal areas and dumping, you know, just a shit ton of rain. So 
The president heads to the Carolinas. Dangerous floods are still threatening the area. 10,000 people remain in shelters in North Carolina alone, and the governor is urging them to stay put, saying it's just still too dangerous to go home. ABC's Eva Pilgrim is in Fedville with the very latest. Good morning, Eva. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, you can see this road is closed. It's flooded out this car here left behind. And it seems like this that's prompted the governor to ask people to stay put. You can see just how much water is behind me. He's not wanting anyone to go out and put their life at risk. Now, this, as the latest numbers have come in, 37 deaths across three states being blamed on this storm. You know, one of the big things that could conceivably happen you know, you know, United States is basically United States of corn. If, you know, you know, corn is everything, right? If we were to lose like the corn crop, we're toast. I mean, the whole food chain is going to break down, um, and so you know, that's what's going to be the thing that contributes to, you know, what I see is at least a partial collapse of, of human civilization, probably, you know, in a relatively near term. Oh, I don't disagree. I mean, some people might think that sounds alarmist. I do not, and. So we're seeing more extremes within our weather because of the climate change, meaning that we used to have weather patterns that would push through rather quickly. They're not being pushed through anymore. They're staying in one place longer, meaning if you have a heat wave coming in, it's not being pushed through. So it's staying there longer and it's becoming a more extreme heat wave because of it exactly. staying there. And you have this, yeah. yeah, so you have the same thing going on the flip side. So. So this is about the extremes that we're seeing. You know, you had iguanas that were frozen in Florida. What What the hell was that? I don't know if you saw yeah. seen any of those photos. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I know. My parents, my parents live in, in Florida. That's where I grew up. I, I worked at SeaWorld in Florida back in the in the 90s. And, and um, I've been down there when they've had these weird, you know, freezeovers. And, you know, there's a lot of things that live around. My parents live on a lake so there's a lot of tree frogs and they literally lost all the frogs because oh they God, froze yeah, yeah it's and, crazy. Uh, i saw photos yeah. of them just falling like not falling they had already fallen out of the tree but you could see where they had been in the tree and fallen down frozen and you're like wow this is like disturbing i am um, speaking right. of climate change i want to ask you about mosquitoes um i know <laughs> this might sound like an odd question but i know that orcas have been uh, prone to dying because of mosquito bites in captivity, and I think probably a lot of our audience members would be surprised to hear that. Uh, West Nile disease, I believe, some other things. But I'm a big believer that this is one of the biggest areas of climate change. Uh, we're seeing mosquitoes spread out to much larger territories, areas where you would have never been warm enough from being there, now overwintering in these areas. So, so the areas that they're spreading, and mosquitoes carry very deadly diseases, and they are hard to um, they're hard to fight. So I'm a big believer that mosquitoes is a big problem. And what what is what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm about to tweet you a paper that I wrote on this topic with oh, Dr. See, John. There you go. That, Great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah. So this is a peer-reviewed uh, a case study that appeared in the journal of their ecology. It's called Orca Captivity and Vulnerability to Mosquito Transmitted Viruses. Um, we published this back in 2012-2013, and what happened, two of the whales at least at SeaWorld, one in 1990, his name was Can Duke, he was a transient Northeast Pacific male. He was bitten by a mosquito in September of uh, 1990, and because he was immunocompromised from captivity itself, in other words, his immune system was weak, a virus that normally doesn't kill mammals killed him, and that was 
St. Louis virus encephalitis. So that's what he died of, and we know this because he published a paper on it. Then again, in 2007, an animal named Taku, so he had to get he had to get shipped to Texas. He was bitten by a mosquito in the summer of 2007. A mosquito transmitted um, West Nile West Nile virus Taku, and he also died of encephalitis from this neuroinvasive condition. Now, West Nile and St. Louis encephalitis are typically not fatal, but if you have immunocompromised, if you have HIV, for example, if you're an older person with a weak immune system, then that's when they become deadly. So, yes, um, disease transmission with climate change and with the thawing of the permafrost, they're worried about new viruses being released into the world. Um, and that's probably happening right now, and at some point we're probably going to see more and more outbreaks associated with the thawing of the plant. And um, so, so just for clarity, these types of viruses that are transmitted by arthropods are called slavey viruses, and so it was the exact same mechanism that killed uh, Kanduke and also Taku, two big males. And, and one of the things that we talked about in our case report is that because Males like Taku, like Tilikum, as seen in Blackfish and Kandu, are so much bigger than their female counterpart. The pools are much relatively smaller, so they swim a lot less. And what they do, what they do over 50% of the time they're in captivity is they float listlessly at the surface. And when they do that, we know science has told us that mosquitoes are attracted to two things, CO2 and dark surfaces. What does the killer have on his back? A blowhole blasting out CO2, and then the mosquito follows that trench rail, arrives at a big black, essentially aircraft carrier sitting in the middle of a pool. And so they, um, they, they, they bite him in the back, and some people say, well, isn't, this, isn't their skin really thick? It's not that thick. It feels like the surface of a hard-boiled egg with the shell, with the shell removed and a lot of muscle under, right underneath the skin, and they also get sunburned from logging so much, and that creates cracks and burns on, on their backs. And we used to apply black-colored zinc oxide to cover that up, to cover that up like makeup. Yeah, so, yeah, mosquito-borne illnesses, mosquito-borne illnesses, I think, are going to be, start becoming a much bigger problem across the board. Uh, we have now in California... The I'm going to say this the AIDS AEDES the A E D E S this uh, it's a breed of mosquito from South America that they've seen for the first time the last year and a half here in the L A County Basin area really small aggressive mosquito that bites during the day so um, I just don't see how this ends you know it just keeps getting worse and worse and I suppose they could start doing some sort of sterilizing. Um, um, of the, the male mosquitoes to try to control the populations because I don't think the pesticides are going to be effective. But I just think this is, I think this is a, um, it's a hot button item that's not really getting discussed in the media that I think at some point is going to become a much bigger problem. Absolutely. Um, I think that one of the things that our media does quite well is keep the relevant, at least cable news, keep the relevant information uh, from the people. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's, you know, that's on purpose. That's on intentional, in my in my opinion. We've seen a lot of the uh, media personalities from some of the major cable network stations say this. You know. I think I think it's the media were honest and they're not. And by the way, there's been some great points made 
by folks such as yourself, people in alternative media, um, Abby Martin, you know, Lee yeah. Camp, yeah. Do all, you, know, all this, you know, so what happens in the corporate world is that people that are in line with the, the oligarchic narrative are the ones that end up getting promoted through the system. And that's why you see even people in positions like, you know, Rachel Maddow and, and other people rise to the top with this kind of this, this pseudo-leftism. But really, you know, you watch for Joe, which I can't stand to watch, uh, anymore. And, you know, you've got Northrop Grumman and the military industrial complex running ads during her show. So it's really promoting, the, you know, the, the wrong message, right? And, and, and all this, all this, uh, Trump gate, I mean, Russia gate stuff that's going on. You know, like, you know, it's totally out of control. And look, you know, just like they blame Susan Sarandon for the coffee, you know, they're, they're, they're blaming the, the revelation of that, uh, of the truth with these that these emails showed, you know, that, that's, you know, you, you can't run literally based on the data, the worst candidate in recorded American pop political history. Yeah. And expect to get a good result, and 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 well, I'm the other guy. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's mind numbing to me. He never had to run a single ad. The media just did nothing but talk about Trump twenty four seven. You know, and we can get into the idea that uh, he was lying when he told folks that he was going to drain the swamp. I think all of that's pretty obviously true at this point. But right. at, but at that particular moment in time, it was really tone deaf for the DNC and the media and everybody else to ignore the fact that there's massive income inequality in the, in the country. And we were running, uh, on the left, we were running a bankster candidate that was handpicked by Wall Street that had a history of siding with corporate interests from you know the DLC with her husband forward. It was just completely toned down. Well, the fracking queen. She's the fracking queen. She's only fracking, fracking all over the world. She's so uh, good foreign policy as, as Secretary of State. I mean, this is a legit thing that she did. And so this idea, it was really upsetting to me, actually, now that you just bring that up. It was really upsetting to me to see a lot of the environmental groups endorse Hillary Clinton during the primary season. I was really blown away by this because I thought to myself, why are you've got another candidate here who's, who's clearly saying fracking is wrong and, and is far more environmental on many other issues and then you have hillary that's selling fracking as good foreign policy you're supposed to be an environmental group what the heck are you doing you know you have the CRM, yeah, I mean, you go down the list it was like a lot of the major groups endure and fine if you're going to do that wait till the general election but to do that in a primary yeah you're going to lose my support and for, for a woman you know to have a woman in there and i'm like well look I, you know, i'm all for that I, i've actually gone on regarding a lot of the interviews that I've done for Blackfish, which have been probably hundreds, yeah. advocated for matriarchy. I'm a fool on let the women take it somewhere because the men have totally fucked the whole world up. So please, <laughs> let's try something better. So I'm, I'm all for that. And I'm all for a woman's president, for sure. Just give us someone that isn't going to screw things up worse. I have made the argument that the neo lives. Are, are in some ways worse than the Republicans. Republicans are so kind of stupid. They just kind of do it right in your face. But the yeah. Neil is with their Podesta cartels and stuff behind the scenes and just, you know, getting it from behind, behind the scenes. And, and, and that's what Hillary uh, represented to me. More, right. more of the same. And, and I think Obama selling out to the Clinton, but I, I perceive anyway. She gets let down. Yeah. Oh, he's president. And he 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 comes out 
first thing he puts on his plate is health care. Doesn't even put single payer, even as a negotiating chip, like conceived that before the talks even began. Yeah, you can well, see that, it. that was a bad idea. I agree. Um, and then another thing, I'm, as I mentioned to you previously, I'm a huge advocate of psychedelics and cannabis and stuff for medicine and as medicine. He could have he could have done everybody a favor and helped both um, the criminal justice system at the same time by taking cannabis off Schedule One. I mean, who in the hell believes that cannabis on par with heroin or PCP? Which is really a shame because it thwarts research. Because it was as a Schedule One drug, the researchers, medical researchers, aren't allowed to actually research possible medical um, medicinal things that it can be used for. And we now know, you know, it's being tested now in kids for um, for uh, epilepsy, where it's been very effective. Yeah. So I attend that there's a group called the Multi. You can follow them too on Twitter at Maps M A P S Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They put on two psychedelic science conferences, both at Oakland. Uh, this Rick Dublin is the, is the head guy of this thing, and he's the, when they put MDMA, also known as ecstasy, on the Reagan administration put it on uh, Schedule One status because they were the government freaks out. When uh, when a new drug comes along, and there were some designer drugs that were killing people in the '80s, so MDMA got put in that category. But at the time, and prior to this, also in the '70s, MDMA was being used effectively for things like marriage counseling and PTSD, and heavily in the psychiatric psychology community. And when that happened, it took it off the table. Like you said, no more research, no more, no more nothing, and then it all went underground. Well, I'm Gabe Garza with today's health news. Many know it as a street drug called ecstasy or molly, but some researchers out of California are looking to investigate whether MDMA has medical benefits for autism patients living with acute social anxiety. The proposed study could lead some to rethink traditional conceptions about the drug. Prior to MDMA becoming illegal in the 1980s, there was research into possible therapeutic advantages. Now researchers say that the search for psychotherapeutic options for autistic individuals is necessary due to the lack of effective conventional treatments. They also say that under clinical conditions, MDMA is a relatively safe drug. The overall hope is that one day therapists could exploit MDMA's potential to create feelings of emotional well-being and empathy to counteract social anxiety that many with autism experience. According to The Independent, a similar study is already underway, exploring MDMA's potential to help those cope with PTSD. Times are changing now, and they're finding out that MDMA is a great treatment for PTSD, um, for counseling. And there's a, like, I think it's, you might want to check me on this, but I think the taxpayer burden for soldiers that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that have suffered PTSD is like $8 billion a year. So, so, if you can, instead of putting these guys on SSRIs like Prozac, and you can give them one or two sessions with NDMA therapy in a controlled environment, it's curing them because they're able to face their fears and go back and, and just kind of expunge what's making them crazy. And so it's working. So we're actually in phase three trials with NDMA. And according to the people with MAPS, they think that MDMA will be legalized by 2021. And the same thing is happening with psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. Magic. They're using it for, for, for smoking cessation, end of life 
life coping mechanism, depression. Same with ketamine, which is a pharmaceutical for depression. Um, LSD for end of life. And these things are potentially useful as medicine. And, you know, of course, anyone that's tried some of these things to probably, you know, if they had a good experience, see how they could be used productively in society to cure, actually cure things instead of getting people hooked on things, you know, like SSRIs and other antidepressants. Or fentanyl and other hardcore... Uh, yeah, products, right, opioids. Right, which are far more dangerous. Do you know the history um, of LSD therapy? I know uh, I was watching a documentary on Showtime last week, and Cary Grant was doing LSD therapy in the 50s. So at that particular junction in time, it was um, perfectly legal. How did it become illegal? Do you know? I do. Um, so uh, LSD was invented by a Dutch chemist named Albert Hoffman, I think, in 1918. Um, that's why you know everyone knows about four twenty. Uh, but there's the day, the day right before four twenty, which is where everyone smokes out, is four nineteen. That that's that's known as Bicycle Day. It's celebrated heavily in San Francisco and Oakland. But that's the day that Albert Hoffman took an intentional dose month of LSD and went for a bicycle ride. So that's why that's called. Uh, bicycle Day, right before 19, before 420. But then, uh, so LSD is being used in all kinds of ways by people for psychotherapy. Timothy Leary, as you know, was a huge LSD advocate at Harvard. He was a Harvard professor. And what happened is that, you know, what was the line, the famous Timothy Leary quote? Uh, uh, Timothy Leary? Check yeah. in, check out. Uh, dose it up and check out. You know, the, he scared the establishment, basically. So there was this <laughs> backlash in the 70s, and then, you know, everyone going, and then everything just got banished. They called that the Dark Ages of Psychedelic Research, MDMA, in, I think, 1985, when the Reagan administration shut it down. And so these substances, unfortunately, were banned for a long time. But now, the there there is merit to their healing properties, and that's why this renaissance, so to speak, of psychedelic research is going on. I encourage people to go to at MAPS, M-A-P-S, and, and dig into what I'm saying. There's lots of great videos. They've got sessions on there with veterans that are having these wonderful recoveries from Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and um, and there's also lectures and a lot of science. I mean, the people that are leading the science are like the Beckley Foundation in the UK, uh, University of California at Los Angeles, uh, Johns Hopkins, Harvard. It's not it's not like backroom chemists doing this anymore. It's the real deal. And um, it's, it's kind of exciting as a healer because you've got to fix something and just give somebody a medicine they're going to take for the rest of their lives. Right, right. So that's great. I'm glad that the, the uh, winds of ch uh, change have come when it comes to these types of drugs because I do think that they have a lot of uh, potential helpful sides to them, and it's just been completely thwarted by the federal government for so long. And for, for a lot less reasons, it seems to me alcohol, in many ways, can be more dangerous yet. Here British Journal, about maybe up to 10 years ago now, that listed, developed a, like a criteria for the most harmful drugs. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think like um, heroin and PCP were like one and two, and then cocaine was in the top five. I think alcohol was like number eight. And I think it's interesting to also note that uh, a lot of the pressure that came against legalizing marijuana came from the alcohol industry, their lobbyist groups. They don't want marijuana legalized because they think they're going to lose business on the consumer side. 
That's true. There was, there was a lot of other overlaying things. I think uh, the uh, Hertz family, who runs the Chicago Tribune and also the DuPonts, and because uh, hemp was also a source of making paper, mm-hmm. um, so they didn't want competition from that. There's also hemp oil that scared petroleum industry. Right. They were making hemp to make clothing, to make anchor ropes for boats. So there was a lot of economic incentives that the oligarchy in the early 20th century uh, used, for example, I think the Chicago Tribune, to turn marijuana into basically a class drug. Like, for example, literally black people smoke weed, it's bad. Blah, blah, blah. It's a civil rights issue for sure. I mean, even, not even, I mean, if you look at the rates of incarceration compared to user rates, the per capita rates, it's it's really clear that the African American population has been arrested at a much higher rate for marijuana use than uh, any of the white folk have. So, yeah, it's definitely part of the part of the conversation. Well, there's no doubt about that. And that's one of the reasons why I bust Obama's job, because he yeah. talks about criminal justice, and think about how many unjustly incarcerated uh, African Americans are in jails right now doing work for the oligarchy for free labor because they're on weed charges, which is a joke. So fucked up. Yeah, Obama did try, you know, when we, after we legalized marijuana here, medical marijuana here in California, the Fed, he still was saying, well, we might, the Fed might come in there and shut you guys down. He was still pushing for, for um, incarcerating and, and pursuing drug charges for marijuana. It was just like, why are you doing this? That was such a disappointment. I mean, by the way, I'd love to have a conversation with him. And I think, I think his, I, I love his wife, but I, I think they're a good couple and good people. And I think he's a fascinating guy and, and did a lot of good things and broke some barriers. But I think he almost like, once he got elected, you know, he kind of sold out, at least in my opinion, um, yeah. to, to the, to the, to the, you know, to the establishment. He definitely came to the pressure. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, I think he, he, I mean, he was the one that was running on single payer. He was the one that was running on, running on reforming criminal justice. He was the one, you know, so we go from two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq to like seven, you know, like what the hell? You know, he, I'm a whistleblower, right? I take huge offense at the way he ramped up charges against I agree. He campaigned on doing the opposite, and yet he attacked them more ferociously. There were so many things that he had campaigned on, they ended up doing the opposite on it. I just, to this day, I'm so dumbfounded and disappointed by that. I just, I don't know. What do you think about um, who's going to run in 2020? That'll be probably pretty controversial. But um, what do you think? I'm still a Bernie gal, so I'm still a Bernie gal. No, 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 me, me too. I just, I, I can see the establishment Dems running. Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden, I think, will run. I think we might see Cory Booker, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, I think even, believe it or not, Eric Garcetti might throw his hat in the ring. Which, you know, yeah, he, think, he's not a great I, mayor. I voted for him, and I'm very displeased with a lot of the neoliberal stuff that he's pushed. Yeah, I think that uh, 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 Jay Inley from Washington gearing up for a run, and that's one of the reasons he doesn't want to take on bands right now. Even though... Oh, yeah. It would be a win-win for him. Um, and, um, you know, going back to Obama, um, what's the name of that girl? That, I got it. It's a reality winner. Like, you're right. She's the poster child for this situation. And I just don't understand. You know, whistleblowers serve such an important part to our democracy. They let the sunshine in, and we're all better off if we have 
information. You know, in the same way that I see a lot of the um, Hillary Clinton cultists, like, angry at WikiLeaks for, for, you know, printing the Podesta emails. I'm like, why are you angry at them being exposed? Be angry about what was exposed, the information itself, because a lot of that stuff was pretty bad. And it it's be, still coming out. It's, it's, still, it's right? still coming Yeah. So why are people angry at the at the person doing as opposed to what the crap that's been going on? I want to know. Show me the truth every time because it, that makes me a better voter. It makes me a more informed part of the population. I don't want to vote for people that are furthering corruption. I don't care if they're a Democrat. It doesn't matter to me. If, if they are a corrupt Democrat, I want them out of office. Absolutely. Um, I need transparency. Of course, Bernie was all over this. We need to overturn Citizens United, get the money out. Um, I'd like to see us go to more of a UK type electoral system that's like what eight weeks and that's it. And it's state funded. Yeah. And UK is a parliamentary system. I think um I think we should maybe look at doing some at in the very least some ranked uh, choice voting here, which would kind of clean up the primary um, situation as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Rank vote is great. What I'm talking about is just the duration. Whatever format you want, just oh, cut yeah, it down so where it's not two campaigning. years. Yeah, I got you. It's, it's like eight weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that make, that would be helpful because God knows I get tired of hearing it too. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Washington-specific politics. Um, Barney Sanders introduced the, the, the bill that's designed, it's the Bezos bill that's designed to basically – and put an end to the fact that we have major corporations in this country paying their workers so little that the workers are collecting food stamps. So um, I fully support this idea. As we continue with our part two on Amazon, it made headlines this week when it became the second American company, after Apple, to reach $1 trillion in value. Amazon's founder and chief executive, Jeff Bezos, is the richest man in the world, with a net worth of more than $167 billion. But what's behind that wealth? What about its workers? For more, we continue our conversation with James Bloodworth, British reporter, author of the new book, Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain. In part one of this discussion, James, you talked about urine bottle that you found in the plant because people are penalized if they go to the bathroom too quickly at these large warehouses for Amazon products. Lay out for us again what you found when you worked at Amazon undercover. So, I mean, the urine bottle was was the most kind of pertinent example of, of one of the things I found, but it was it was effectively a consequence of the productivity obsession uh, in the Amazon warehouse. So what I mean by that is we worked in this huge warehouse. So this, it was the size of 10 soccer pitches. So Amazon would boast about how big this warehouse was. It had four floors and I would be working. I was working on the top floor of this warehouse. Um, and so and there were two toilets um, at the other end of the warehouse. So if, so if you you know, if you were working on the top floor where I was and you needed to use the bathroom, you have to walk down four flights of stairs. You have to go through airport style security um, to use the bathroom. And, and this would take, you know, five to 10 minutes to, to kind of do this. Um, and so you have a situation where workers, many workers are afraid to go to the bathroom because they're we're constantly being uh, admonished by management for taking so-called idle time, as they would call it, um, when there's there's kind of three, four, five minutes 
um, on your on your handheld device, which says you haven't been you know productive during that time. Now just that's three, four the minutes, question. That's in, a question in any other I job have. Would be using the bathroom. James, just for people to understand, I mean, I'm thinking, how do they know you're going to the bathroom? How do they monitor you? So, so yes, that's a, that's a good question. So what happens is. Every every Amazon shift for an order picker, you have you have this handheld uh, device which you take around with you, and what it does is it, it directs you around the warehouse. It's like an algorithm, and it tells you which items you have to pick um, and whereabouts in the warehouse those items are. Um, but it also management also monitor these. It also sends things sends information down to kind of central computers um, at the bottom of the warehouse, and management can also send you messages through about you know your productivity rates etc. Um, to these devices. So. Well, obviously, if you go to the toilet, it's the devices. You know, it, it it's clear that you're not picking orders during that time because you you're 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 taking so-called idle time, as they would call it. it it's built on the impoverishment um, of of his workforce. It's built on the the kind of the mistreatment of of, in my opinion, of you know vast vast numbers of his workforce. I mean, we when we order something on Amazon, we we click on the screen. We don't really see the chain uh, behind that and, and what goes on and you know, I think it's it's imperative on on us as citizens, but it's also imperative on on governments. I mean, Bernie Sanders has been has been rightly talking about this. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, I read a stat, and I think it was based on an art. someone did the math on this, and it, it was it was inspired by what you're talking about. And they said that if wealth were distributed equally between all the people that live in the United States, and I'll, I'll have you. Do this by having you guessing. Do you know what our annual salaries would all be? <laughs> so we're you're talking about like the median versus mode. I'm going to have a moment here. So I'll digress for one second, just so the audience knows what we're talking about. When we talk about averages, you have two ways of doing that. You can do it where you're saying, if I add nine plus one and get ten, that's one thing. If I add five plus five and get ten, so. These tell two different pictures. We're actually in a nine-one situation now, and not a five-five. And right. so, so you're you're trying to take us from the nine-one to the five-five. So let me say, if, if God, you know, the the one percent so tilted so heavily that I'm going to have to go with some astronomically high number like four hundred k. That's a great guess, but um, yeah, no, it's seven hundred thousand dollars a piece. Okay, so seven hundred. So I'm not even halfway there, but and and people might look at here we go four hundred k is this huge number, but yeah, I believe seven hundred k. That I mean, think about it. Last year, twenty seventeen, uh, over eighty percent of the new wealth that was created in the country went to the one percent. Think about that. Exactly. I mean, this is this is beyond. We passed we passed the threshold that it was in the twenties two or three years ago, and it's just got, right. it, it's just accelerated and gotten worse. What we're doing right now in this country is untenable. And, you know, Karl Marx, let me wax philosopher for a second. You know, whether or not you agree with his solutions about, you know, social economies, et cetera, I, I think he made some very salient criticisms about capitalism. And one of the things that he talks about is the idea that, that capitalism, the way it's designed just to continually pursue profit, at some point, it doesn't pay attention anymore to the wages of the workers. Like in the past, we've had constraints on that, um, meaning okay. that we didn't have globalization. So so CEOs in this country uh, had to be concerned with what they paid their workers because they would want to have a, a consumer pool that had expendable income that could buy their widgets, so to speak. Then globalization came along, and that was no longer a necessity. They created credit. Well, we'll just give the workers credit. So now they can buy things on credit. It's not that big of a deal. We can continue to not... Uh, increase wages 
well, now everybody's maxed out on their credit. So that's, right. not a, that's not a possibility. So we've now, we're running, we've run the course and I think we're at that, we're at that stage of late stage capitalism now where really it is, it's reached an untenable situation and it can't continue. It's eventually going to, you know, sort of self implode. Yeah, one of the greatest interviews about Marxism, one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter is the Marxist economist Richard Wolff. Oh, and oh, he's, got a, yeah. he's got a great interview with Abby Martin. When the employer, when I hire you for 20 bucks an hour, I know that for every hour that you give me your work, your brains, your muscles to work, I'm going to have more stuff to sell at the end of the day because you're added to my workforce. You're going to help me produce more goods or more services or better quality goods and services than I would have if I didn't employ you. So I'm going to say to myself, hmm, it costs me to get Abby $20 an hour. What do I get out of it? I want, I'm going to have the output that Abby adds by her labor. Now that has got to be more than 20 bucks. So the only way I'm going to hire you for $20 an hour is if you produce more in the hour than I give you. So when you feel in a vague way at the end of the day as you walk home that you're being ripped off, you're absolutely right. Or in Marx's language, exploited. So what does the capitalist say? I earned it. No, you didn't. He just ripped people off. The way most corporations work is four times a year, they take the profits they've made in the preceding three months, and they distribute a portion of them to their shareholders. These distributions are called dividends. So if you own a lot of shares, say because you inherited them from your grandma, or you stole money and bought them on the stock market, there are lots of ways of getting them. But if you have them, Four times a year, you go to your mailbox in the morning and you get an envelope and you tear it open and inside is a check for your share of the profits that have been distributed to shareholders. For rich people, this is millions of dollars. They have all that money. What did they do exactly to earn that money? Interview that goes through the history and how capitalism itself has built in internal conflicts just like slavery did, just like feudalism did. Right. And cap right. Capitalism evolved out of a market feudalism, and it still basically has the same structure, but we just don't call people kings and lords. Now we call them, you know, whatever, bankers and presidents <laughs> and stuff like that. But the, the percentages of, like, the there's a pyramid that compares the percentages of the different levels of people. Basically, there's this huge group of workers at the base of the pyramid that's doing all the work. And then you've got somebody like Jeff Bezos that's worth $155 billion, who makes like $30 million a day or some crap like that, yeah. where his, his Seattle or his global Amazon employees are having to collect food stamps. It's, it's really... fucking insane. It is insane. And, then, and it's the same thing with um, healthcare. These, uh, and, uh, the CEOs of all the big insurance companies are all pulling like, down like base salary is like a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred fifty thousand million, I'm sorry, million dollars a year. And um, you know, where they're you know, the people at the bottom of the chain are making squat. And then the patients you know, if you if you go to single pair, you get rid of all of that. And that's where my heart is, and that's where I want this to go. I'm a native optimist, but what I've seen 
over the last 20, 18 years especially. And it's really hard. You know, I go back and look at Crossroads. I think about how kind of different things might be had Al Gore prevailed. I'm not an out necessarily Al Gore fan, but how different, you know, like I never could have imagined a president worse than George W. Bush. I never got here. This is another But here's our... And now they're trying to rehabilitate his image on the left. It's just driving me nuts right now. Every time I hear somebody say, like, I never thought I'd miss George W. Bush. And I'm like, are you crazy? You think Trump is worse than George W. Bush? Get out of here. (laughs) You know, one of the things that he he got smeared big time, but he was talking about metric system. He was talking about going solar. He had solar panels on the White House. Yeah. Jimmy Carter. And then, of course, you got Trump by the machine, and then Reagan just ramped up. You know the uh, you know that's kind of what a lot of people peg the Reagan is, is the birthplace of our current uh, neoliberalism you know approach to you know corporatocracy and all that. It really exploded under him. I think the 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 uh, the roots of it can go back a little bit further, but it really didn't take hold. I think until Reagan. I mean, you had in the seventies you had. Uh, the creation of more corporate lobbyist groups. You had the Powell memo, which was, you know, the memo that Powell sent out that was talking about how business had to galvanize against the New Deal. So, I mean, I think there were seeds that happened before that. But, yeah, I I would agree that under Reagan is where it really sort of took off. And then Clinton, Bill Clinton, just, you know, he lobbed that shit home. He did. And then, you know, and you can also even go back to the morning, Eisenhower gives, you know, when he was leaving office of the Jerry Industrial Complex ramping up and you know, it was a 1961 speech that's readily available, but everything that he predicted, um, you know, has come true, which leads, which leads me to, you know, the number one recipient of military industrial complex dollars who just died, John McCain, being heralded as a hero. And that's something that irks me. I mean, he was the, he's been leading the march to war his entire life. So in Seattle, I want to talk about um, the homeless problem because we have a very severe homeless problem here in Los Angeles. Uh, but the Seattle homeless problem is is pretty close to ours. I think um, per capita there are fifty four homeless per ten k in King County, and here in LA, I think it's uh, slightly worse with fifty nine per capita for each ten thousand residents. But nonetheless, it's a big problem, and we've seen in the news recently where they've. Uh, just been wiping out the unauthorized 10 cities. I don't know where these folks are supposed to go. So Seattle's sort of at this point, in my mind, uh, a very keen example for the income inequality in the country because you have some of the wealthiest folks, whether it's Jeff Bezos or uh, Bill Gates, et cetera, from the tech industry with these folks that literally are working. uh, They they have jobs. That's what the other thing people need to understand. 27% of the people that are homeless actually have full-time employment. So we're not talking about people that are sitting around doing drugs. Really. These are folks that simply aren't paid enough to actually um, put food on the table, pay for housing, and all the other things. It's just not possible on what they're getting paid. So this is me. Home is where the mud is for Nicole Simper, a former drug addict trying to turn her life around, living in a tent on Airport Way and Royal Brougham, just south of downtown. There's pools of water. Nicole was forced out of the infamous jungle during last month's cleanup under I-5 and came to this unauthorized camp on city property because shelters are not open when she finishes her part-time job as a stadium attendant. There's a lot of shelters that won't let you in past a certain time. Um, And that's what I really think is a really big problem is not being able to get in after a certain hour. That's one of thousands of reasons why people are sleeping outside in Seattle 
and the city's new director of homelessness admits our current efforts aren't working as well as they should. The system we have now is a shelter system. And what we need is a system that helps people move through the shelter system as fast as possible. So first-hand observations, um, I, I go over to Seattle fairly regularly and getting to be kind of in your face, things that I've noticed. I've been in the Northwest most years since 1997. I lived in Portland, Oregon for six years, and now I'm east of the mountains and I go to Seattle regularly. And so the problem has blown up, and I think that that is just a simple function of wealth inequality. We're sending more people into poverty, and we're also getting more draconian with our militarized police forces, and, and, and the polarization of our political dialogue has become, you know, um, just over-the-top insane. And uh, whenever I go to Seattle, I see these tent cities under the overpasses and stuff like that. It just, it's, it just makes me feel bad. And it, it's a sign for me that what's pathological aren't the homeless people under the bridges, but it's the system itself. And that right. that corresponds with all the things of depression and post-traumatic stress and all kinds of medical pathologies that I see in my office. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I mean, people come to me with pain, and a lot of it's just personal. And so um, it's really a sad state of affairs. I think that if humanity itself is... Well, you know, I'm not predicting extinction, but if we're to, to move forward and evolve, I think there needs to be, you know, a reworking of the entire system. And, and a big part of that is figuring out something better than law of capitalism. I see this stuff and my heart breaks. And, you know, we also have a situation where folks are sleeping in their cars, families that are living in RVs, their, their houses, with the whole families in their houses in RV. That's what they're living in. And the parents are working. So it's not... It's just, it's, it's disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's, I just don't understand how as a country we can look at this and think it's okay. You know? I'm just as guilty. I mean, I, I, it's tough for me to order things on Amazon anymore, but I, I yeah, still. I stopped. I stopped. I have to be honest with you. I, I just can't, I go out of my way now, even though it's less convenient to buy things elsewhere because I don't want to feed the machine anymore. I don't want to be guilty of being part of the problem. And, and it, as whether we like it or not, we live in a capitalist environment, and the best way that we can vote our opinion is with our wallets. Right. And there was a, speaking of the homeless thing real quick, there, I live in a college town named Ellensburg. It's, yeah. Uh, this college here is, uh, I think, the fastest growing one in, in the Northwest Central Washington University. Ellensburg, by the way, was uh, tearing off against Olympia back in the late 19th century as who was going to be the capital of Washington. Oh, and, okay. so, and so Olympia won the battle. So <laughs> Ellensburg, Ellensburg got a state university, kind of like the consolation prize. But right. there's a Kit County where Ellensburg is, has been for the last couple of years in the top 10, based on, per, not on gross numbers, but on per capita, percentage-wise, fastest growing counties in the United States. And so... It's blowing up here, but everyone remembers the, the crash in 2008. So they did a, a, a like a like an expose piece on these homeless people that you're talking about, who was a guy that was a well-known contractor that lost everything back in 2008. Now he's living in a tent, you know, like behind a gas station. Wow. Wow. And the guy's got an education, but you know, 
when you're once you're put into that situation, it's hard then to be competitive in the job market. You know, you, know, you, you don't have a place to take a shower, you don't have any clothes, you're just kind of yep. kicked to the curb. And I don't know the full details. This was just one piece that was, you know, shining a light on this one guy. But it was supporting the point that you said that these aren't all drug addicts and people strung out and, and whatever. There's a lot of people that just can't make ends meet in the kind of the cutthroat world that we live in now, myself included. I make an above-average living. I'm a physician, but I, pardon my fucking incurred a four hundred thousand dollar debt over this shit. And so, you know, if things were to go south with me right now, um, I could be that guy. You know, so the yeah. next thing we're looking at, I think, that is the big toxic debt football. It's astronomically high in the country. It just seems to yeah. be getting worse, and and the student debt problem has gotten no relief. It's amazing to me that in the United States you can declare bankruptcy and you will still be liable for your student fucking debt. Are you kidding me? Yeah, but throwing a lot of money at this thing or happening for the last six or seven years. But I mean, it's it's, it's, it's bad and it's it a racket, you know. It is like, a racket. I mean, on a month-to-month basis, you know, you're collecting. You know, I think I think last year, I think I paid forty. $8,000 in interest on that student loan. Okay? Wow. That's, see, that's interest. That is, that's blind on me. I, fortunately, I'm lucky. I have, I have a master's degree, and I never had to take a student loan, so I feel very privileged for that. But I also came of age in California when the university systems were still financed by the state. My, my tuition at UC Irvine was not super crazy high. I didn't have to take a loan. I'm lucky enough to where I'm still able to attend these great, I mean, UC Irvine's like public Ivy League. It's a fantastic school. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But I worry about the kids. I worry about uh, our future. I want a more educated population, not a less educated one. And I don't think, uh, you know, I was reading in the tax scam bill that one of the things that they were cutting was uh, stipends to grad students. Uh, not cutting, um, taxing stipends to grad students. Why would you tax a grad student stipend? I mean, are you fucking kidding me? This is this is like, they're already barely getting anything to be there. They're teaching the undergrads, and now you're going to apply an income tax that they've never had to pay before. It's just, and in the meantime, corporations continue to get a free ride. So I wanted to ask you uh, one last question. Um, what film, are you working on any new film projects, any follow-ups, um, any other documentaries that you might have on online yeah so there's a there's two films that i recently filmed for um one is kind of a follow-up film to blackfish called long gone wild blackfish exceeded expectation and we never could have predicted the influence and the depth which with which it's penetrated the culture This is a lucrative business. It is wildlife trade. There's nothing worse but the drug trade when you're talking about scary. With that kind of money, there's potential inevitability, I should say, for corruption in two places that are notoriously corrupt, Russia and China.
And what it does is it kind of picks up the story after Blackfish and talks about Blackfish was partially successful in terms of bringing the message to Western audiences. I'm referring to Europe and the United States. But what's happening in China and Russia and uh, the Middle East right now is is like SeaWorld on steroids. So one of the guys that presented at a SuperPod 6 event, every two years I host an event in San Juan Island. In fact, you should attend the next one, as you remember, is in 2020. It begins on July 20th. And what we do is we, we go out, we see what, about 300 people come from all over the world. Heavily, there were seven documentary crews there this year in July. Anyway, next one, uh, and he he presented it the one that we just had in July. There's 59 SeaWorld equivalents now in China. Oh my God. 800, 800 million people are right now coming from poverty in the middle class status in China. So that's why we're seeing all this animal trade, you know, uh, ivory. Uh, tiger claw, aphrodisiac stuff going yeah. on the black market, shark finning, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, all this pressure on the animal kingdom essentially to feed the rise of the Chinese middle class. Um, but so his film, Long Gone Wild, deals with the future of captivity and how, you know, Blackfish did a lot of great things, but here's where the story is now. SeaWorld now owned by a Chinese theme park corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, the Zonghong Group, it owns 23%, I think, of their stock. So they hold the chair on the board of directors. And if people know this, SeaWorld stock is going up right now. One reason is because the whole stock market's going up. But another one is because they're getting bailed out by China, wow. who really doesn't give a rip about animal rights. And they don't give a rip about animal rights in Russia, who are doing all the collections for Chinese. And they don't give a rip in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi who have a lot of money and are building courts there. So there's going to be a SeaWorld in Abu Dhabi apparently by 2022. There's already 59 SeaWorld equivalents built in China, and they're building more of them. And so people can look for the movie Long Gone Wild. I don't know if that's the final name, but that's what it was when they filmed me in July. And then there's another story if you find the walrus whisperer on Twitter. Um, Phil Demers is, is <clears throat> kind of leading the charge against Marine Landing Canada. And, um, he's been charged with a slap lawsuit, which is a frivolous lawsuit that basically shut him up because he's a whistleblower like I am and like the other people at Voice of the Orcas are. And so, But they sued him, and so he's engaged in a five-year battle, and that's ongoing right now. So- Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? It's just my name, um, Jeffrey Ventry. I don't know if I, I yeah, Jeffrey underscore Ventry, J E F F R E Y underscore V E N T R E. And um, yeah, look for me there. And, and um, also maps at M A P S if they want to get into the psychedelic research. And uh, Phil Demers is called the Walrus Whisperer. And um, yeah, I usually call people back, especially if they're kind of like you and I are kind of you know similar. Yeah. They're putting out good shit, basically. I, I don't follow crap on Twitter, <laughs> but you know, I, I follow. I, I, I people give my attention, and then I'll definitely follow them. Um, I'll follow back but, um, small accounts if they're allies. I don't. I don't...